Hello and welcome to the Medjlis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Paneer, host of the Medjlis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. When Sadr Japara became president of Kyrgyzstan, one of his promises was that his government would finally resolve the long-standing issues of unmarked sections of Kyrgyzstan's borders with Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. That has proven difficult to accomplish. There's been public resistance to a recent border agreement with Uzbekistan, and there have been two brief but destructive wars with Tajikistan in the last 18 months. What are the difficulties in demarcating Kyrgyzstan's border, and what does international law say about issues such as land and water rights that have been at the heart of problems between Kyrgyzstan and its southern and western neighbors? To discuss all this, I am joined by Victoria Akchurana, a lecturer at the OSC Academy in Bishkek and author of the recently released book, Incomplete State Building in Central Asia, the State is Social Practice, and Bikit Beshimov, formerly a member of the Kyrgyz Parliament, also a former Kyrgyz ambassador to India and to the OSCE, and currently a Global Studies and International Relations lecturer and professor at Northeastern University. Thank you both for joining me. And Victoria, I'm going to start with you. Could you, I know this is asking a lot, but but very briefly, could you give me a summary of the situation along Kyrgyzstan's borders with Tajikistan and Uzbekistan? What are the main obstacles to marking the remaining sections of unmarked border territory? Yes, thank you, Bruce. Well, the situation right now is basically difficult and it depends on how you want to look at it. Of course, the, the popular commentary goes that it is a matter of demarcation and it is a matter of swapping different kinds of lands and especially swapping land for water. However, the the causes of this problem, they, they run much deeper than just uh, a border issue. So yes, basically the root causes, they lie, I, I think they are structural and they, they run deeper into history of how uh, Fergana Valley and that, because Fergana Valley is trisected, as we all know, it's trisected by three countries, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan. And therefore it was historically evolving as a joint um, space, social space, we can say. Um, however, with the with the emergence of the nation states in the uh, 90s after the collapse of the Soviet Union, what we have is the clash between a fixed object, which is a national border, and then a dynamic object, a quote-unquote object, which is water. So what we see is two different logics clashing there, right? The Something that needs to be fixed, sovereign, and exclusive, something that creates a, an image of the other, something that almost needs that image of the other on the other side of the border, and then the process that connects people, especially at the grassroots uh, community level. In more specific and more practical terms, it can also be traced back to the way waters and borders were managed during the Soviet time, right? And specifically, if we think of the three-tier system uh, of water sharing during the Soviet time, uh, we had the regional, then the national level, and the community level. The community level was basically uh, managed behind the gates of the collective farms, which stopped existing, right, in the 90s. And then lands at that time, they face the privatization process. So 
decollectivization process, uh, which then translated into privatization of lands, that more or less took place and that more or less was settled. However, the waters that were in the same lands and territories at the community level, they haven't been yet managed very well. And we can talk, we can say that while there were international efforts, for instance, water users associations and so on, which tried to create this community-based associations on water sharing across borders, uh, but um, they have so far been pretty episodical and some of them are registered but not really existing or some of them are registered and having just one or two persons uh, actually being members and, and not the entire communities. So communities at the very, very grassroots level, they remain in a way unmanaged. At least the state as in, in, as in this neutral institution that is supposed to create political order has been failing to reach out to those communities. In fact, the way the states then organized and created borders the national borders, uh, even disrupted what I call societal in, cross-border societal interdependence. And this societal interdependence basically is a process of bonding, is a process of connecting. While borders, national borders, sovereign borders, represent the process of separation. So you have walls facing uh, you know, walls and bridges in a way, you know, if speaking in metaphorical terms, which is why when issues appear, for instance, like today with Kemperabad and demarcation of borders, it, it becomes too complicated because the limitation of borders today cannot be done without figuring out the water sharing part of it. It cannot be done peacefully without figuring out how to reconcile that structural contradiction between building bridges and building walls, right? Building, having the process of separation and having the process of connection happening at the same time. That's why this situation with border delimitation is so com complicated and not so straightforward. That's why it's not just about borders. It's not just about interstate relations. It is a multi-layered multi issue of, of political order and the, the, the shared bond and the shared kind of governance, especially at the grassroots level. Okay, great. Thank you very yeah, I much. I can go on, but I'm not sure if I can, if I should first give space. Uh, to and I'm, yeah. I'm actually going to get back to a couple of these points here in a minute, but I want to bring Bakit in here for a minute because, Bakit, you were, you were a member of the government. Uh, you must have been... Uh, privy to some of these um, discussions with with uh, on border demarcation uh, with Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. I mean, what was in your experience, or from what you hear from people in Kyrgyzstan now? I mean, what what is the approach of the Kyrgyz government? I mean, what are, what what is the Kyrgyz government looking for when it starts to negotiate border deals with Tajikistan or Uzbekistan, or for that fact, uh, Kazakhstan or China? Thank you, first of all, uh, Bruce, for inviting to this very interesting talk and. Uh, you know, it's a long process of border demarcation between these uh, countries, and it took almost 30 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union. 
And it was a serious reason for that because this uh, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan were operated with different approaches, different models how to demarcate the border. And it's a stalemate. With Uzbekistan, as uh, Victoria said, it is a very complex uh, issue related to the mix of uh, land and uh, water uh, resources. And generally, I can say it's uh, in this part of the world, we see the rising conflict over natural resources, and it will uh, continue, and uh, probably it will bring to a very difficult and dangerous situation. But uh, how this uh, recent uh, Kyrgyz uh, uh, rulers decided to solve this problem? First of all, they made two uh, mistakes uh, in their decision-making process. First, they uh, supposed that uh, their predecessors didn't solve this problem because they were uh, not uh, enough decisive. And they decided to speed up this process and to be resolutely to solve this problem. They underestimated the complexity of the issue. In the case of Tajikistan, they just brought the situation into the bloody conflicts. Because today, they don't know how to solve this problem. And they are making some temporary measures, but they are even not close to the solution of this problem. With Uzbekistan, uh, it's uh, regarding the uh, water resources. They created a conflict inside of the country because uh, local uh, Kyrgyz uh, consumers of water, they are so angry and they are today uh, through the repression trying to suppress this movement. But how long they can contain these angry people? Because uh, after, uh, and the, the second mistake they made, it is that they uh, supposed that if they solve this uh, uh, problem, demarcate the border with Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, they uh, will uh, will be no conflicts. No, uh, there is no any serious evidence to think uh, about that. Because even if they demarcate the border with Uzbekistan, sharing uh, natural resources is still a difficult problem. Because we see on a local level, central level, how they manage the access of people to resources. Problem of access to pastures, problem of sharing water resources uh, still. And after that, we see the increasing complexity of this. Because in a Ferdinand uh, Valley on the Uzbek side, we see the demographic situation created kind of uh, um, environment where a uh, number of uh, water consumers is rising and the demand for water is increasing and how they can solve the problem. And after that, we see that the shortage of water, rising shortage of water due to the uh, speedy melt of uh, glaciers, uh, uh, disappearance of uh, groundwater resources, uh, and so on. That's why I uh, we see very uh, complex situation which I don't think they will be resolved uh, soon. Okay, thank you very much. Um, Victoria, I want to get back to you and, and talk about from a legal aspect, and, and specifically the Kempitabad Reservoir. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what, what the history is of that, and what, what does international law say about water use from a, something like the reservoir like Kempitabad? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you very much. So, 
Yes, I would like to just follow up first on, on Bakit's message about the natural resources and, and, and the lack, lack of access to pastures, etc. And that's very much so. I, I would agree with that. And also, people, like if we look at the complaints of people, they also complain that the, 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 the lands that were around the Kimpirabad, they were used for rice, for growing rice, and, and that's why they, they are afraid and unhappy of losing them, etc. However, if um, if we really look at it from such a small, like particularistic point of view, we 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 really lose the big picture because it is, as I told before, it is it, it is a typical tragedy of the commons, and this is the issue that requires transnational and transborder kind of governance. And not only at the national level, it, it, it has to be developed at the community level, first of all. So in terms of international uh, law, because you asked before, we we could think about the United Nations regimes on transboundary rivers, right? For example, we could start from signing agreements and using, using that common good uh, altogether, right? In terms of how legally it was done before and how whether Kempirabad is such a straightforward or black and white issue in legal terms, well, it isn't because um, when when we go through the archives uh, in the 60s, right, there, there are a few, there's, there's, besides the signed documents, there's also the correspondence between the ministries uh, of, of Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan and and. Uh, it's very, if, if we look at it, it's strictly legal terms. It's not so easy to separate the, the ter- and, and, and it would sound a bit absurd and Kafkaesque, but it's not easy to, to sort of deconstruct the land under the water, the, the reservoir, the territory of the reservoir itself, because of course it belongs by all the documents, archival documents, it also belongs to Kyrgyzstan. Right as a territory, if you look at it only strictly flatly as a land, as a territory, then you have the water, then you have the facilities and access to it, and then we have this whole system of how this water is used. And 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 uh, Bakit would correct me if I'm wrong in terms of how what were the quotas for Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan. And so we ha- we deal here with multi-layered issue because the human right for water doesn't really exist in Central Asia yet. What I mean by that, I mean, of course, it exists in, in, in normative and in moral terms, but it doesn't in legal terms, and, and it doesn't in, in managerial, in organizational, in, in political, but applied political terms. In, in what sense? Uh, that uh, it doesn't have the legal, the communities around those waters, the shared waters in Fergana Valley, be it trans- transboundary rivers, be, be it reservoirs, be it water sharing stations. And, and, and we know that in 2021, April, the conflict with Tajikistan starts with the water sharing station, right? So at least as a trigger, at least it triggered, was triggered there. And then we can discuss whether it was important and not and whatnot. But the fact that water and resources are always figuring in the picture is is there. So communities as such, and and and, and this roots back to how privatization of lands or decollectivization of lands happened. 
the, the communities, ha- communities haven't received the legal right, the legal persona when it comes to water sharing. And, and that's why it, it is a really difficult question because water in the reservoir, even if we admit that that reservoir was built on the Kyrgyz land, but according to mutual agreements between the two countries, and even though some commentaries or most commentaries in the media say that it was built only or mainly by the Uzbek side, it's not exactly so because the left bank, the left bank, the left side of the canal that goes down to the Sof River was built also by the Kyrgyz side. So it was a joint uh, construction process. Of course, at different stages of that construction, different resources were, were invested or different financial resources were invested. That's, that's another issue. But it has been a joint project from the beginning. It has been the joint usage from the beginning and it has been a joint management from the beginning. But here, by getting to this joint management issue, I'd like to underline that the way we understood joint management during the Soviet time and the way we understand during uh, joint management in the time of market economy and capitalism and neoliberal framework, those are two different kinds of joint management. And this would be another card on the negotiations table, which is problematic, which, which needs to be negotiated. And we need to come to the intersubjective meaning. We need to come to a joint meaning of what is joint management? What does it imply? So technically, and as I said, it would sound absurd, (laughs) technically we would need to talk about the territory underwater, the water, the facilities, and the surrounding lands. And this is Kafkansk totally. And then the next level of negotiation would include where does this water originate from? And it, of course, originates from the from the upper, from the upstream lands, right? Therefore, in this case, Kyrgyzstan. So it's three Kyrgyz rivers of the Sirdarya Mudarya Basin, but they they are still belonging to the basin of transboundary rivers. The problem is that on the Kyrgyz side, we tend to think that okay, this is our river, meaning. The river has a nationality, just like I do, but the river doesn't. I'm sorry. It is a transboundary river. It is a common good. It is a shared resource. However, the population and the public discourse and the commentaries somehow are not ready to think in terms of the common good, to think in terms of the shared resource, right? And and to look back to the social history of that reservoir, of those rivers, of the water sharing and, and the lands that they are crossing and therefore borders that they are crossing. And Bakit is totally right saying that just by border delimitation, we are not going to, to resolve the problem because it's not just border, even though it is one of the most important issues on the table. Yes. And then what else? What else? Uh, for instance, the interesting thing is that when Kempirabad was managed jointly in, in Soviet terms of, of what jointly means. And also in the post-Soviet time, in the last 30 years, paradoxically, even though the lands around it are Kyrgyz lands, the access to the reservoir was provided by the Uzbek side. So there were still hindrances in terms of 
who governs, right? Typical Robert Dahl's who governs. What is the political authority? What are the layers of political authority? And, and, and yes, it hasn't started today. It's, it hasn't started with today's negotiations. So nobody somehow talks about that the access was much more limited than it is now after the negotiations. So interestingly, the Uzbek side now re- relaxed the access, right, to, to, that, to that part. Whether it is somewhere legally written down of it, and if, if it's legally binding at the moment to provide free access to Kyrgyz population that live in the surrounding uh, territories, that we don't know or I don't know. We would need to, to research to see the actual uh, documents of this negotiation that nobody has really seen. But at least at practice, the access is much more relaxed at the moment for the Kyrgyz people, for the Kyrgyz side, than it was before. And, and, and this should be noted. This is an interesting development. Yeah, I, I don't know if I said too much, or is there anything I need to elaborate on? Mm-hmm. And we're gonna, and I'll get we're gonna give you a chance to get to do so in just a, in a moment here. Um, Bakit, do you want to add anything to that? Or I have a question for you if you don't. Uh, you, you know, I give you some uh, specific examples about uh, uh, complaints of uh, local people uh, regarding Kemperabad uh, water reservoir. My close relatives live in Kursha, and it's just next to this reservoir. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Victoria rightly underlined one thing. Even uh, we are thinking that if they set up joint venture, which will be responsible for management of uh, uh, water on this reservoir, they will not solve the, the following uh, small but very complex problem. When a level of water in this reservoir go up, it uh, uh, groundwater go up and destroying the foundation of the houses. And it, it is, that's why this is the main concern of a, lo, a lot of local dwellers, those who live close to this reservoir. And, and you know, they are not taking into account this situation a lot. And after, second thing, it is very difficult competently analyze this issue uh, because we, we don't know the details. They secretly approved in a parliament yesterday uh, this agreement. And uh, nothing released for public, and we don't know uh, how we would like to manage, uh, how we would like to delimit water, how we would like to control the level of uh, water in this reservoir, and taking into account this kind of uh, concerns of uh, local people about which I mentioned. Okay, fantastic. You know, and we're gonna we're gonna pick up on that point in just a second, but I think we have reached the halfway section of the this Medley's podcast. Uh, and that's my cue to remind that this is the Medjlis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's weekly current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Pinner, host of the Medjlis Podcast, and our subject today is the problems marking, of marking Kyrgyzstan's borders with Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. And discussing that topic with me today are Bakit Bashima, formerly a member of the Kyrgyz Parliament, also formerly a Kyrgyz ambassador to India and an ambassador to uh, also to the OSCE, currently a global studies and international relations lecturer and professor at Northeastern University, and Victoria Akchurina, a lecturer at the OSC Academy in Bishkek and author of the recently released book, Incomplete State Building in Central Asia, The State is Social Practice. 
Um, thank you both again for being on the show with me. But Keith, let's get back to you. You, you know, you just mentioned, and Victoria had mentioned too, that these negotiations, the deals are being cut in secret. I mean, this almost seems like a formula for disaster. Is this common practice to just negotiate with your neighbor and then inform, you know, even in the people, most importantly, the people living right along the border who this affects, uh, who have been kept in the dark that, that this is the new deal and they have to accept it? I uh, assume that uh, Tashiev and uh, Sadr Japarov, they are today uh, understanding that they made a mistake regarding water reservoir. But, uh, uh, and that's why they're afraid to release information about that and uh, scaring that it can create a condition for uprising against them. And uh, that's why we would like to, to sh- put the responsibility on the shoulders of uh, Parliament and uh, after it to uh, escape from this danger. Uh, it, it is my assumption. But uh, when we will get uh, details about this agreement, we can talk about that more specifically. Okay, great. Thank you. Victoria, in your experience, because you deal with borders all over the place, right? Now, we're, we're talking specifically about Kyrgyzstan's borders with Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, but your your book and your research looks at borders all over the place. Is it common practice in, in your research, uh, when you've been researching, to see that governments negotiate these kind of border demarcation deals without inform, without the, the input of the people in the country and, and without consulting the locals in, along the border area? Definitely, <laughs> not only without consulting, not even thinking about what what's happening at the community level and what's happening with those, as Bucket said, small things that are not so small anymore. You know, uh, if if that territory gets flooded in the first place, it's going to be a catastrophe. Like, who is going to be responsible if that happens, right? So, they don't even take into consideration how important the grassroots level is for state-society relations and for that social contract between the state and the sovereign and the people, right? So, yes, definitely. Uh, for, for instance, to do my archival research, I had to go to Moscow, Dushanbe and Tashkent, where I was seeing those, you know, that correspondence and, and, and so on. And paradoxically, during the Soviet times in the 20s, 30s, 50s, there were many more petitions from the communities to Moscow authorities <laughs> than there are now. Or now, okay, now people go and protest, but I mean, more petitions were taken into consideration during the nation territorial delimitation back then than, than now, which is a very interesting uh, point, which, which only shows that communities have been really left alone. Uh, the, the, the local population in Fergana Valley has just been left to its own self-management, self-governance. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, I think, Bruce, we need to, to take into account in what kind of political uh, situation uh, this uh, Kyrgyz government uh, pushing forward their own agenda. First of all, you know that about a little bit more than 30% of electorate participated in the last presidential election. And uh, their legitimacy is still weak. And uh, to get support of uh, uh, immediate neighbors like Uzbekistan, uh, it was at that time also very important. And it seems to me they were grabbed, uh, occupied by this uh, 
uh, ideas how to uh, strengthen their power and uh, to get more legitimacy and to get uh, more popular support. And in order to uh, to do that, we decided to uh, just speed up uh, this process, as I said before, not uh, taking into account complexity of these uh, issues and how a lot of things uh, are really connected to that. As Victoria said, it's not only just border. It's about land, it's about water, it is about a mix of a lot of problems. And if you take into account demography uh, and the density of a population in uh, different parts of Fergana Valley, it is a very complicated issue. And these guys, they didn't take seriously these factors into account. And they brought the situation in that kind of a stalemate. Even if they approve and push uh, this uh, demarcation of uh, border with Uzbekistan and approve this uh, management uh, of uh, Kemperabat water uh, reservoir, it will not stop conflict. It will even put more fuel into conflict because today, through the uh, repression, they can stop for a while this situation, but later on people rise because uh, because on a daily basis they will start to feel that painfully, you know, not getting access to uh, resources, uh, rise of groundwater. They are um, being angry uh, why they decided not taking into account their concerns and so on. It will create huge conflict in a very near future. Uh, you know, let me follow up with that then and ask you something. The, the, the Japarov government is trying to uh, make the claim, the counterclaim anyway, that, that this is a good deal for Kyrgyzstan, that they are gaining 18,000 hectares of land while they're only giving up the 4,500 hectares of land, part of which has the Kempirabad Reservoir on it, to Uzbekistan. But, you know, if you remember, it just, you know, not so many years ago, Ungar too. Right, which was the big relay station mountain. Uh, Uzbek troops occupied that several times, uh, and it, it caused a big problem. Now that's clearly part of Kyrgyzstan, so it removes that problem. Uh, are, is Japarov's government? Do they are they naive in thinking that they can say, "Look, we're getting more land than the other side is, so we're actually winning"? We removed this problem of Ungar too, which has been a big thorn in our side for years and years out there. But we got to give up the reservoir. Is that? I mean, it, it, he makes it when he says it simply like that. It sounds like Kyrgyzstan is winning, getting something, getting more than it's losing out of this. Is that is that untrue? <laughs> yes, it's very simplistic approach to this situation because uh, they uh, occupied by their uh, so so called patriotic uh, sense that they will not give up any even centimeter of the land. But what about water? What about our resources? What about the system of these resources? They are not taken. They very simplistic approach in order to get popular support. It's a populistic approach to a very extremely complex uh, systemic uh, issue. Uh, and this is the biggest uh, problem. Uh, you know, they are saying, no, we get more than Uzbekistan. And then local people asking, okay, if you get war, can you just say about value of this land which we got? And after that, why are you trading this uh, uh, land uh, to water reservoir? How you can justify that? Can you release your protocol signed with Uzbekistan? Can you share with us details? And that 
what we did, we invited people and uh, just uh, confidentially uh, discuss with them this issue. Uh, some people who participate in that painting, they openly express their uh, angriness and their concerns. They say, no, they are trying to manipulate. They are uh, actually cheating us and so on. They didn't convince the local leaders about that. Uh, secondly, you know, uh, this is uh, conflicts on a border really uh, escalated due to their wrong attitude or wrong attitude to this uh, complex issue. Sometimes it is important not to solve but to manage this problem uh, in order just to wait the right time to solve a problem. Uh, let's take the situation with uh, Tajikistan. We are operating with different maps and they complicated this issue. They invited Russia to be mediator in that problem. And Russia has promised to share their own maps from their archives and so on. But what will be a calculus of Russia in that situation? What if Russia will use not objective approach to this, uh, uh, but a political uh, approach, mean uh, taking into account to whom support and why Russia interested in supporting that side against uh, another side and so on. Okay, thanks. Um, we're getting close to the end, so I'm going to have to ask my last question, and then if you have any comments uh, at the end, then please, uh, you're, you're free to make them. But I'm curious as to, on your thoughts that we know who's what the governments are like in Tajikistan and, and Uzbekistan. Right, Rahman's been in power for you know it'll be thirty years actually pretty soon. Uh, you know, Mirziyoyev's only been in power since twenty sixteen, but his predecessor was in the whole time. Does Kyrgyzstan work from kind of a disadvantage in any ways in their border negotiations when they when they talk with Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, where we know the governments are going to last a long time, and they look at Kyrgyzstan and see. Really, you know, six actually different governments since 2000 in the last 20 years, uh, right? If we count elections and, and revolutions, is that a handicap for Kyrgyzstan going into border talks? I mean, it kind of undercuts the credibility, you know, of the negotiators sometimes when the Uzbeks think, well, we're talking with these people today, but we have no idea who's going to be there next year. Uh, you know, is, is that does that hinder or hurt Kyrgyzstan's negotiating possibilities? You know, from uh, Uzbek side and the uh, Kyrgyz side, we see that they are also pushing this, their own uh, approaches to this problem. Probably they are thinking that uh, this uh, Kyrgyz region uh, will not uh, sustain for <laughs> a longer time and they are uh, using the weaknesses of this regime and the, uh, let's say, uh, questionable attitude to this complex issue. They're trying to solve this problem uh, as soon as possible. Because uh, for Uzbekistan, they are thinking it's the right time. That's why they're trying to quickly legitimize all uh, decisions uh, reached with Kyrgyzstan. That isn't the case in, with uh, Tajikistan. Any ideas why they're... Why- Instead of trying to get a fast agreement with the Kyrgyzstan, they're, they seem to be rejecting uh, any proposals. Admittedly, Kyrgyzstan has made, you know, I remember Japarov saying that if uh, Tajikistan wanted places like uh, Varuk and, you know, the enclave out there and everything, maybe they should be willing to give up part of uh, Gornobadakshan, uh, where Kyrgyz still live to this day. Uh, is that, uh, why is it so much more difficult with 
Or why are the Tajiks being so much more difficult than the Uzbeks? Uh, because uh, uh, so the, Tajikistan is difficult. Uh, we see that it's due to the character of a regime in Tajikistan. And uh, after that, uh, by uh, the certain nationalistic ideology. Because uh, in Tajikistan, you'll see that during the uh, last decades, they promoted the idea that all this land, especially the Batken region, belonged to them historically historical and that's why they would like just to you know uh, establish the historical justice and so on and the local people very much occupied by these uh, ideas uh, when we analyze uh, social networks where Tajiks discuss on this problem we can see that it's very visible and the Tajik regime is uh, uh, fragile and they're trying to uh, uh, maneuver between the different groups and uh, even uh, being very um, dictatorial, this regime cannot uh, control different uh, forces inside of the uh, country, in uh, uh, army, in uh, police and so on. And uh, therefore, even uh, some groups using uh, foreigners to attack uh, Kyrgyz territory and uh, uh, we, we, we saw that, we saw it, and uh, there, there is uh, evidence of, of that. But why Tashiv decided to, uh, you know, to um, play uh, the game on the side of a Tajik, saying that this, we will attack not by the Tajikistan, but by the unknown people, it's uh, still uh, puzzling, still puzzling. And, uh, and we see that both sides preparing to the next conflict. And in that situation, we uh, can say that the next conflict is uh, becoming almost inevitable. Uh, Okay, well, I'll open up the floor. Victoria, do you want to make any comments on this before we close this session out? Yes, uh, I probably do. I I mean, I'd like to just follow up on what what Bakit was saying uh, in terms of Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and, and again, the issue of and the issue of continuity of regimes and so on. So I, I would say that the fact that this fear that any regime would, the new the, the change of, the frequent change of regime in Kyrgyzstan is a problem because they don't trust. I actually would say there's a lot of continuity in the regimes, regardless of the change of the elites. Like when you have the upheaval, it doesn't mean you have a revolution. Revolution requires a change of the system, of structures, of institutions, etc., which haven't been changed in Kyrgyzstan, if at all they were actually getting backwards towards the more, well, for example, towards, again, the presidential uh, form of governance, etc. So even if we take it to the issue of border delimitation, Ungarto issue was discussed and sort of, I don't know if we can use the term resolved to that, but it was discussed first during 2001-2008 period, right? So it's a totally different government, and we could say it was discussed during another regime, or Bakiv's regime, and so on, uh, also archives and then Bakiv. So during both regimes, these issues were discussed, and it's it seems like that actually these new negotiations, they didn't bring too much news. <laughs> In a way, they just... Uh, restated or maintained the status quo that was achieved during the previous regimes, which only proves that this has not been a real revolution. So I am not sure I would um, 
see Kyrgyzstan as unstable if we think of it in that uh, in that way, you know, if we think of it in terms of the system and systemic change rather than elite and elite change. Just changing one person doesn't mean the systemic change is happening. So, um, and maybe that's why they are afraid to show the actual documents to the population because part of them would, I, I'm, I mean, as I said, that's a bit of a speculation on my side, given that we haven't seen the, the secret documents. But part of that fear could be that people would see that that's what Bakiyev decided or his government decided and not the today's government. So it would kind of undermine this legitimacy of this whole uh, new, fresh, quote-unquote revolutionary regime, you know. That's one comment. The other one is about Tajikistan and Voruch and, and that. In that sense, Tajikistan is indeed being more difficult, but the main the main problem in that negotiation and in the popular commentaries in the media is that it seems like the problem is Voruch. Like Tajik side is saying, no, it's ours, Kyrgyz side. The narrative developed, the latest development of the narrative is also about that it's our territory. In fact, initially, Voruch is Tajik territory, but it is an enclave surrounded by Kyrgyz territories, right? So it's nobody, Kyrgyz, Kyrgyzstan initially never claimed the rights for Voruch as such. So why is Tajik side making it sound like somebody is trying to deprive them of Voruch? This is a big question, right? What the real, so, so you see the, why narrative becomes so important that it's getting the life of its own. It, it makes the issue out of nothing. Like in a way, nobody had claims over Voruch as enclave, but the Actually, the real problem was the road, right? The, the, the road that connects Kyrgyz territories to Kyrgyz territories and, and, and uh, Tajiks to ta- Tajik mainland through Kyrgyz territories, etc. And that road was also jointly built and managed, right? So if we go down and, and trace back the where it all the discussions started, it was about the road. It was about the creeping migration and, and, and this 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 kind of sporadic moving of, of fences and houses to towards Kyrgyz territory. So the issue was that when Kyrgyzstan was asking, hey, if you are moving, if you have built a village on, on our territory, uh, maybe let's talk about swapping some other, exactly the same amount of territory for another, on some other, you know, territory, it might include parts or of Voruch or so, but nobody really claimed or had this on <laughs> in the table initially. It's what narrative did later, and, and, and the problem is that it's becoming that problem. However, another paradoxical thing, even though right now Tajikistan is trying to get weapon from Iran and support uh, of militarization and find the support to militarize themselves the the after this la- latest conflict these borders somehow they have you i mean i'm sure we all saw the decision to demilitarize the borders and sort of remove the border guards the <laughs> the posts why is that happening after such a huge uh, infighting, right, when so many people have, have suffered, uh, why do we need to remove borders right at this moment? Not before when we needed the actual use of lands and the actual use of water for people, communities, and so on, but right 
after the infighting, it, it, it makes, it creates a hypothesis that both of it, it's the elite project. It has nothing to do with one state fighting another state or one society going against the other. And, and I would like to underline that my point is that giving the narrative this interstate power is very dangerous because it turns a problem which is about something else, right, into an interstate. I'm afraid of this word war right and and this is dangerous like and especially by demilitarizing it at this moment or even removing border guards whatsoever while gaining and buying weapon meanwhile what is going on what is going on and and of course this brings us to the hypothesis that okay fergana valley is a hub for anything any informal illicit uh, trafficking there is also legal one, but illicit as well. So where is that on the picture? You know, maybe that's the control over that trafficking. We need whatever, you know, we, I mean, elites might need, or maybe not. Like, but it definitely tells us that they don't care about people. And this is the problem. The, 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 we lose the social, the social component, the humanitarian component, the grassroots component in all of this and that's dangerous this is uh, uh, you know uh, bruce may i add uh, what victoria said i would like pick up her uh, last sentence regarding grassroots level you know uh, again uh, we will understand this situation more better on uh, local level and after that on a central level if we take into account the following factors about which we are unfortunately don't have enough information first of all uh, about cattle from both sides and their access to uh, pastures, uh, I mean, uh, regarding Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. Second, how we are sharing uh, water resources, what we are doing. Secondly, transportation, uh, with intensity of this transportation. Uh, housing, uh, housing in that part of the world. Uh, demography uh, along the border and the Tajikistan side is one picture and the Kyrgyz side is another picture. I can assume that uh, probably someone in a Tajik government thinking if they create a constant tension in uh, along the border, they will uh, push uh, Kyrgyz families out of a border. And uh, through this, they can just uh, uh, make this land available uh, for them, probably, because uh, this kind of uh, ideas I discovered in the uh, different social networks and interviews of uh, some officials. And uh, after that, uh, Victoria is right, saying it's not only about Waruch. Uh, Waruch is uh, just uh, uh, one part of a uh, problem and small part of the problem. It's, again, a mix of a lot of factors which we need to examine more carefully. And we should not afraid to use the possibility of interstate war because statistics during the last two decades shows that intensity increasing and the number of officials and policemen and soldiers involved in this conflict is going up. And it's creating condition for local uh, war between these uh, two states. 
And after it, we need to take into account that how dangerous both regimes, both regimes were populistic and uh, authoritarian uh, regimes. And that's why we, uh, it's very hard to predict how they can act in the uh, next uh, months. And in order to, uh, to survive, they can even in, get uh, uh, mobilized support for themselves. They can go to uh, anything. And they are already doing that. They are collecting weapons. Uh, they are uh, preparing to the uh, next conflict. And when uh, one and our issue, in 2009, we bought the picture uh, regarding the uh, drug trafficking through uh, these uh, checkpoints. And you know, higher officials were involved in that. And we even got the uh, picture of the uh, son of uh, Bakiev, who personally came to, uh, to do that. And uh, after that, uh, I mistakenly uh, announced prematurely this, uh, this thing. And my house was raided by the uh, police, and they took everything from my house in 2009. And I told about them uh, in my interview what uh, happened. This is uh, what uh, is going on in Kyrgyzstan. It's to some extent, it's a continuation of uh, Bakir's regime. But this uh, government go getting more dangerous, more dangerous. No, yeah, I, I definitely, it, yeah. Sorry, Bruce, we got <laughs> really into this. I have more comments, but if we have to stop, we'll, we'll stop. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I would, we could talk about this for a long, long time. If you want to get in one more comment, Victoria, go ahead. But we should probably wrap this up pretty soon. Okay, I'll try to be quick. So three things. I, and, and I would like to totally agree with Bucket on this point as well. And um, I just want to kind of have a final conclusion in that we need to, as in the narrative, like especially media, journalists, you know, those who make the public opinion, it's very important to keep the humanitarian cause and human rights in mind, also human rights for water, human rights for land, you know, those kinds of human rights that we don't talk much about, okay? And we also need to keep in mind that this narrative of inter-ethnic conflict or interstate conflict, it is very dangerous. It is getting the life of its own. And the conditions for war, unfortunately, seem to be become real. But the problem is that it's not going to be Tajik people fighting Kyrgyz people, because I lived in that area too, and also in the enclaves, in Voruch. And people always told me they feel more sense of belonging with their Kyrgyz neighbor on the other side of that road that they, they we were discussing, you know, that they watch Kyrgyz television, they speak some of the Kyrgyz language, and they feel more disconnected from, from their central states, right? So what we need to understand is that there is a connection within Fergana Valley, or there was at least a connection within Fergana Valley uh, among all these multi-layered communities. It's not that clear cut over there, who is Tajik, who is Uzbek, who is Kyrgyz, who is whatever. I mean, it is on some formal level, but it isn't if we look at the practice of joint share, of, of, of common sharing, etc. You know, and this social history and this societal interdependence is very important because what the elites are trying to do, they're breaking that. They're breaking that common social space by, yes, as Bucket said, by populist means, we should 
keep that in mind and underline this as much as possible so that people do not turn against each other, even if their governments do. And my second point is that this tragedy of the commons is, is about this shared resource, shared space even, you know, the social space that we share over there. But it's not necessarily neo-Malthusian. It's not that we lack resources. We have enough. But we lack good governance, transnationally, cross-border, grassroots kind of governance, you know. And my final last point is that, okay, everyone, be it civil activists or, you know, protesters, they, they focus on Kempirabad and that kind of injustice in terms of water, quote-unquote, right? But what about uh, situations when elites, they trade water privately, just bottling that and trading them to, say, whatever, Middle East, Gulf, etc. So it happened during Bakir's time. And even up to date, the legislation doesn't include water as a commodity. It's, it's literally that formulation when I saw it in the legislation. So again, legally, they are not, it's not, it's not prohibited to make commodity out of water, but also commodity privately, you know, without consulting with people, without making it. So when it comes to this external other, we make it about about us and them for some reason, you know. But when it comes to the local problems that societies, both or all three of them have, where these things disappear, why some groups are allowed to use water or national resources as a commodity and some are not, etc. So where is the nation in that case then? If there is, then it should always be there, whatever is the other, the image of the other. So, but, but as I said, it's better to, I hope we will try to sign up to the UN regime on transboundary rivers. I hope we will raise awareness in terms of the common good and we will raise awareness of this shared, uh, shared social space rather than continue the narrative of inter-ethnic, inter-state, inter-inter-inter, you know. We need to look at the bonds rather than separations, at the bridges rather than, than walls. Yeah, and I stop here. Thank you so much. Yes, of course, of course. Uh, it's, it's, I agree with you, Victoria. Uh, but in reality, we can see that people-to-people diplomacy doesn't work in that region. Secondly, ordinary people who are living next to each other during the conflict, they are participating violently in that conflict. Thirdly, they can solve this problem by just uh, very good management and uh, very positive attitude to each other, but they are not doing that. And we need to uh, think also of the implications of this authoritarian, populistic, nationalistic regimes to the uh, common sense of uh, ordinary people on a local level. Unfortunately, they were gravitated by these wrong ideas and instead of uh, just uh, to solve a problem by themselves, they are participants of these dangerous conflicts. This is what's going on in reality. Okay, wow. You know, we could go on this with this conversation for a long time, and there's certainly a lot more to say to this, but unfortunately, we haven't speaking for an hour. Uh, actually, fortunately, it was good. It was a good hour. Like I said, thank you. But I do have to wrap this up. I have to let Nathan go, and I know Victoria's got to go to sleep here pretty soon. And 
Bikitia, of course, is that you need to go to. So I'll just say a excellent discussion. Thank you very much, Victoria and Bakit. Uh, and a huge thank you to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjelis podcast producer in Washington, D.C. Uh, and a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjelis podcast or the Central Asia and Focus newsletter by visiting RFARL's website at rfarl.org. Thank you very much, and we'll be back next week. Bye-bye.